On March 25, 2021, Rutgers University announced that it would require all three campuses, which include the New Brunswick, the Newark, and Canyon campus, to require students attending in-person classes to obtain documentation of vaccinations against COVID-19. This announcement was made as New Jersey has become the leading state in the number of COVID-19 cases in the nation. According to the New York Times, as of this recording, New Jersey has 900,271 cases and 24,404 deaths. To paint a more simpler picture, isolating March 29th, 2021, and using that day by itself, 3,621 cases have been reported with 15 deaths in New Jersey. And while some applaud the efforts of Rutgers University in an attempt to return to normalcy, people like New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, vaccine skeptics and anti-vaxxers rage over what they call an assault in personal freedom and the onset of the depopulation plan known as Agenda 21. I am your social chemist Nelson, and today we're going to look at Rutgers University's mandatory vaccine policy. If you're listening on Spotify, click on that follow button for me. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, click on that subscribe button for me and leave me a five-star review. By doing so, you help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories within politics. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Social Chemist. If possible, share this podcast with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode. As always, I will include all my references on The Social Chemist Facebook page. So with that being said, let's dive in. Now, if you guys recall in my last episode, I said that I was going to post an episode at least once a month to keep it active. And while that was my plan, I was actually not going to post an episode until my semester ended because my master's social work program is kicking my ass. Let's just say that I was borderline failing one of my courses and had to do some extra work. But in a series of events, my school ended up in national news. For those who are new to this podcast, I am a graduate student at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, and one day I received an email about how Rutgers was going to require all their students to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And as soon as I read that, I was like, yo, it's about to get heated on Facebook. And as I predicted, shit hit the fan. To give you an idea, their Facebook post announcing required COVID-19 shots garnished over 1,200 emoji responses, 760 of them were likes, and 270 were angry emoji faces. Sorry, anti-vaxxers, we outnumbered you on Facebook. Now, as a former Panera Bread employee that is used to working with soup, I did what I do best. I decided to stir the pot and see what kind of reactions I get. Unfortunately, I didn't get any interactions, but I did see a lot of anti-vaccine talking points. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. And we're going to be assessing some of these claims, as well as Rutgers' vaccine policy. So let us start with the letter the president of Rutgers, Jonathan Holloway, publicly released. And I'm going to read a part of the letter, which I feel is the most important. And I quote, In support of Rutgers' commitment to health and safety for all members of its community, the university will be updating its immunization requirements for students to include the COVID-19 vaccine. This health policy update means that, with limited exceptions, all students planning to attend in the fall of 2021 semester must be fully vaccinated. In parallel, we continue to strongly urge all Rucker faculties and staff to get immunized against COVID-19 at the earliest opportunity, end quote. Let's look at the required vaccines that are needed to attend Rutgers University. 
If you look at their student health website, the vaccines they have listed are the MMR vaccine, the hepatitis vaccine, and the tuberculosis vaccine. Fun fact, to work with children, you're actually required in New Jersey to have this vaccine. I know this for a fact because I was an ABA therapist working with autistic children for four days before the pandemic hit, and if I didn't show documentation of this vaccination, I wasn't going to get hired. Now, one of the main talking points I saw in the Rutgers Facebook comment section was that, unlike the three vaccines that they have listed, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine against COVID-19 aren't FDA approved. Therefore, we won't know the long-term effects, and this is a legitimate concern. However, it's often exploited by anti-vaxxers, and you'll see what I mean. While all U.S. COVID-19 vaccines are not FDA approved, they were granted emergency use authorization, EUA, by the FDA. So how does EUA work? Well, let's read from the FDA website, and I quote, An emergency use authorization, EUA, is a mechanism to facilitate the availability and use of medical countermeasures including vaccines during public health emergencies, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic. Under an EUA, FDA may allow the use of unapprovable medical products or unapproved used of approved medical products in an emergency to diagnose, treat, or prevent serious or life-threatening diseases or conditions when certain statutory criteria have been met, including that there are no adequate, proved, or available alternatives. Taking into consideration input from the FDA, manufacturers decide whether and when to submit an EUA request to the FDA. Once submitted, FDA will evaluate an EUA request and determine whether the relevant statutory criteria are met, taking into account the totality of the scientific evidence about the vaccine that is available to the FDA. End quote. Now, anti-vaxxers have a tendency to mitigate what the FDA and CDC call an emergency, since COVID-19 only kills 1% of the population. They think we should take our masks off and not live in fear because of a little virus. However, as I explained in a previous episode, the 1% in terms of viruses is not as friendly as people assume it to be. According to the CDC, it was estimated that the influenza killed 34,200 Americans during the 2018-2019 flu season. Let's compare those numbers with the COVID-19. Now, as of this recording, it is currently March 30th, 2021. So it's been a little bit over a year since the pandemic really hit the U.S. Taking that into consideration, from March 3rd, 2020 to March 30th, 2021, 549,552 mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers have perished. That's 16 times the amount of influenza deaths in a single year. And those are only the numbers in the U.S. The nation of Brazil, where conspiracy theories and science denialism is at an all-time high, currently has reported 313,866 deaths since February 2nd of 2020. To give you a clear perspective of how bad things are over there, looking only at the date of March 29th, 2021, Brazil had 1,660 deaths. Compare that to the U.S., which only reported 685 deaths. So when people say, why take precaution when 1% of the population is in danger? That's translation for, I get my information from Facebook memes. And people who are immunocompromised, are in chemotherapy, have kidney disease, well, that seems like a personal problem. 
But let's be honest, even if the COVID-19 vaccines were FDA approved, anti-vaxxers would not acknowledge the safety of the vaccine. How do we know this? Because the MMR vaccine and the influenza vaccine are all FDA approved. And that hasn't stopped individuals like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from fear-mongering about how vaccines cause autism. These are the same people who would say that the CDC is a corrupt agency filled with lies, while at the same time citing the VAERS, which was created by the CDC. I'm calling it now. When the FDA does approve the vaccine against COVID-19, they'll scream how the FDA has sold out to implement Agenda 21. And since we're on the topic of the Food and Drug Administration, you know what isn't FDA approved but is constantly being pushed by anti-vaxxers as a way to fight COVID-19? The vitamin and dietary supplement industry, which have paid Republican and Democratic politicians to prevent the FDA from regulating the products that they put out in the market, which have been reported to cause serious health problems such as diabetes and kidney disease. Yet you don't hear anti-vaxxers saying it isn't FDA approved because again, it was never about that in the first place. Now, an interesting talking point that I've come across is the argument that the mRNA vaccine isn't technically a vaccine, but an experimental gene therapy injection, and therefore is not an actual vaccine, like the evil scientists are promoting it to be. The thought process behind this is that since the vaccine doesn't contain an inactive virus, but an mRNA gene that makes your body develop the corona spike that creates antibodies to learn how to fight against COVID-19, that this does not qualify as a vaccine. So let's look at how the CDC defines a vaccine. And I quote, A product that stimulates a person's immune system to produce immunity to a specific disease, protecting the person from that disease. Vaccines are usually administered through needle injections, but can also be administered by mouth or sprayed into the nose. And so the key word here is product. Whether it's an inactive virus or an mRNA gene, what's important is how your body responds to it. And I know some skeptics are ready to pull off the definition of what a vaccine is from websites like dictionary.com, which my response to that is, what medical or professional authorities do the people running those websites have on vaccines? My definition comes from scientists that are currently studying how safe and effective the vaccines are. You got your definition from experts in the English language who base their definition from the CDC. Now, let us talk about lawsuits, because this was a theme I saw a lot when Rutgers announced its immunization requirements. Some people were encouraging people to file lawsuits to defeat the evil administration at Rutgers and teach all the universities who plan to implementing similar policies a lesson. And I think it's very important to talk about vaccine lawsuits because this really touches the incentive behind the anti-vaccine movement. In 1974, three scientists published a paper titled Neurological Complications of Pertussis Inoculation. And the paper claimed that the DBT vaccine, which prevents pertussis as well as other diseases, caused neurological damage in 32 children from zero hours to two weeks after vaccination. But what is pertussis? It's more commonly known as whooping cough, which is a bacterial infection that is highly contagious and deadly in people who are infants and seniors. Many times, whooping cough is misdiagnosed as a common cold. But as whooping cough progresses, the frequency of coughing increases. So you'll, you'll cough, cough, and then, <gasps> and then you'll cough again, and it just, it just makes it hard to breathe. These complications can lead infants and seniors into the intensive care unit, and it's just not a good experience. 
it was later established that the conclusion of this scientific journal article was inaccurate. And the three scientists that published this paper acknowledged it. Unfortunately, not everyone is a scientist and is able to properly interpret scientific journal articles. The general public in Europe took this as evidence that the pertussis vaccine was dangerous and this led to a decline in vaccinations. In Sweden, DTP vaccinations dropped from 90% in 1974 to 12% in 1979. In 1976, Ireland's vaccination dropped down to 30%. In 1976, Japan jumped on the bandwagon of not vaccinating, and rates dropped from 80% in 1974 to 10% in 1976. What followed next was an outbreak of pertussis that crippled these nations. The fear of the DTP vaccine would soon arrive in the United States in 1984, as a series of lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies developing these vaccines began to increase. This discouraged companies like the YF laboratories and the CONF laboratories from producing DTP vaccines, and eventually production was stopped because the little profit they made from the vaccines was not worth the lawsuits they were facing, and in a sense, I can't blame them. Seeing the devastating consequences of how anti-vaccine movements crippled nations in Europe and Japan, U.S. Congress established the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986, also known as NCVIA. This act eventually resulted in the development of the National Injury Compensation Program in 1988, VICP, which compensated families from injuries their children had from routine childhood vaccinations. Both these acts were inspired by the Vaccine Damage Payment Act of 1979, which was enacted in Europe during the vaccine pertussis scare. And I'll quote from Jonathan M. Berman's book, Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement, on page 57 to explain the purpose of these acts. He writes, The act intent was both to create a system monitoring possible unknown reactions from vaccines and to allow who met certain criteria to receive compensation without threatening the supply of vaccines necessary to maintain public health. The act recognized that the private manufacture of vaccines which were necessary for public health, required legal protections when manufacture is unprofitable, corporations lose interest. End quote. Now, some vaccines do carry possible risks for allergic reactions and injuries. However, these reactions are extremely rare when you compare the population of vaccinated people with those that were unfortunate enough to respond negatively. With the enactment of VICP formed vaccine courts, that would determine whether there was sufficient evidence to determine if a vaccine caused any type of injury. If people were able to provide sufficient evidence to determine that their injuries were caused by vaccinations, they would be rewarded up to $250,000. And at times, there were cases where people would walk out with sums of money after providing documentation about when their injuries started. For anti-vaxxers, this was a victory for them. It was proof that the governmental institutions were acknowledging that vaccines were dangerous. However, what people do not realize is that legal evidence and scientific evidence do not hold the same burden of proof. Legal evidence starts with a conclusion and is meant to be persuasive enough that a decision among all participants in court are in agreement. Scientific evidence, on the other hand, proposes a hypothesis without knowing what the conclusion might be and is then either reinforced or disproven by other studies that replicate the same methodology. If you've ever had the misfortune of being selected for jury duty, you'll know that when it's time to decide whether the defendant is innocent or guilty, the decision must be unanimous. 
Now, I've been in situations where me and another person thought the defendant was guilty, but everyone else thought that the person was innocent. Since everyone wanted to go home, we decided to agree that the person was innocent and we called it a day. So it wasn't known to us whether the person was truly guilty or innocent. It was a matter of how many people were persuaded. The perfect example of this is the Casey Anthony case. By law, she's innocent. But let's be real. In vaccine court, you're only required to demonstrate that your injuries occurred around the same time you had your vaccine shot. All you need is a medical opinion to walk out with money. And this is problematic because remember, correlation is not causation. There can be a number of other factors that cause injuries like genetic and environmental factors. But until these criteria are changed, anti-vaxxers are going to exploit this system. So I bring this up because when people on Facebook say they can't wait for the lawsuits that Rutgers are going to face, realize that they are exposing the incentive behind the anti-vaccine movement, which is to profit from the fear and misinformation of people. Now many people were saying how Rutgers is forcing vaccinations on people, and that's misleading because Rutgers isn't forcing you to do anything. As a person, you're not required to attend Rutgers University. No one forces you to apply to a school. You as a person make that decision. So when the fall semester comes, you can either choose to meet the requirements or choose not to and not attend. The choice always exists. Before I end this episode, I do want to talk about Rutgers policy about mandating students to get the COVID-19 vaccine, but keeping it optional for staff members and professors. I actually have a problem with this, and this is a valid criticism for many people. If you're going to mandate students to get vaccinated, the same should be true for every member of the Rutgers community. COVID-19 does not know the difference between a student and a professor. Everyone is vulnerable to this virus. And so if you want to motivate your students to get vaccinated, the standard should be the same for everyone. Rutgers is a diverse community with individuals of all ages and all types of medical conditions. As a collective, it is our duty to protect these people. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. And as always, question everything with logic.